Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth about reconciliation. James says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That means it is between you and them. I don't want him to be humiliated. I don't want him to feel bad. I don't want him to be embarrassed. I want to build him up. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Generally, we have no problem spotting sin, especially when it involves a brother or sister in the Lord. Well, today, Pastor Xavier brings us a true biblical perspective on confronting sin as he takes us to the Gospel of Matthew for today's insightful message, Reconciling a Sinning Brother. Matthew chapter 18 Verses 15 through 20. In chapter 18, we have the fourth major discourse Jesus gave to his disciples. You recall the first one was the Sermon on the Mount. And there he proclaimed the principles of the kingdom, chapter 5, 6, and 7. The second major discourse, he pronounces the provisions and the personal cost regarding the kingdom. And he gave that in chapter 9, verse 35, to chapter 10, verse 42, roughly. The third discourse we found in Matthew 13. There Jesus Christ proclaimed the program of the kingdom through the parabolic uh, form of teaching, the various kingdom parables. Now, in the fourth major discourse, Jesus proclaims, the power of the kingdom. And we find this in the entire chapter, chapter 18. The power of the kingdom is marked by two things, humility and forgiveness. Don't lose that. The entire chapter, as you look at it in the discourse, is intertwined with these two characteristics, which are the genuine evidence of recognizing one's lost condition, owing everything to God, and the responsibility to impart forgiveness as we have received it. And every section is intertwined, mixed together. You cannot separate it. I know many times people do that, and that's where we get in trouble. We take things out of context. We rip them right off. And we declare things that are not biblical. And so the context is the most important thing as you study the Word of God. And I hope if you've learned one thing, if you've been with us for any amount of time, is the context that we studied in all the time so that you get the actual meaning, what Jesus meant or the writer meant for that day. That's the first primary responsibility of an expositor, to tell you what, they, what was meant to those people. And then secondly, to make the bridge over to you, what does it mean to us today? And so all I tell you is what it says, what it means. I illustrate it, and then I apply it. That's all I ever do. I do nothing else. My job is very simple. Very, very simple. Now, the prompting of the discourse was the question of personal greatness in chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
in view of all the personal privilege and success that some of these disciples had, their mind began to be elevated. I know yours wouldn't, but bear with them. Um, Peter, James, and John have had tremendous uh, privilege to be in places where others have not. The raising of Jairus, as they've been down, up at the Mount of Transfiguration, Incredible things are going to be at the Garden of Gethsemane, the other nine or not. Um, going out to minister the gospel, demons have been subject to them. Uh, they've seen and, and been vehicles and instruments of things that, that never even was conceivable in their own imagination. And by this time, you know, they're, they're kind of just striving for positions. And some of them are saying, yeah, well, Peter, you know, and, and Peter did this, and Peter got the kingdom, you know, the keys to the kingdom, and, you know, he gave the confession, yeah, but Peter failed. You know, he walked in the water and he sunk. I mean, you know, and all this conversation going back and forth. As a matter of fact, Mark 33 through 34 tells us that this conversation took place as they were walking to Capernaum. Remember, the previous chapter, the previous verses here, Peter went down to the sea and he got himself his tax money. All these privileges that you have in God, and God allows you to be the instrument of His glory. And we can lose sight that it's His glory, and we start affiliating it to us, and we say, yes, but look what I've done. Look at this church. I started this church from three people. Look what I, look. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? I, this kingdom, this Babylon, I, I, I. He says, you're going to be a beast. You're going to lose your mind for a while till you learn who's the one that does things. And when Nebuchadnezzar regained his sanity, he says, when I regained my sanity, he made a proclamation to all his kingdom. He says, there's a God in heaven who does as he wills. And no one can say to him, what are you doing? And often the people in the church forget who the glory belongs to. We get caught up with our success. We get caught up with the blessings that God gives us. We get caught up with the buildings, the pews, the everything. And we start saying, it's us, me, yes, we're so good. You almost want to throw up because it's all God, nobody else. Luke 9.47 tells us that Jesus perceived their thoughts. Remember, the, let me give you the picture in Mark. In Mark, they're walking towards Capernaum, and I can imagine the, the 12, the dirty dozen here, they drop back. Just long enough, you know, enough distance so that Jesus is walking ahead of because he always led. They're walking with God, and they are foolish enough to think if we drop back just enough, maybe he won't hear us. <laughs> Don't laugh. You've done that too with God, and so have I. And so when they get to the house, he says, by the way, what were you guys talking about? They go, they're silent, Mark tells us. They were embarrassed. And Luke tells us he knew it was in their heart. They were trying to see who was the greatest. Who's it going to be? Jesus took a little child from verses 2 to 5 as the object of humility to enter the kingdom. Talk about being humbled. <laughs> These mighty men of God have done so much, and he takes a little child and uses them as the object of of humility and the greatest. Nicodemus kind of makes this parallel when he says you must be born again or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. But thirdly, Jesus taught the eternal punishment for those who would destroy the innocence as well as to take little children astray from God. 
and verses 6 through 9. It's all intertwined. And I say, woe to those teachers in our educational system who lead away the innocency of children from the concept and the knowledge and the desire to know God. To those professors, which really that's all they are. They profess. They don't possess anything. They possess a lot of knowledge, but they profess to know everything, and they have absolutely nothing. And our educators today in our elementary, junior high school, and high school education, which go out of their way to destroy the purity and the innocence of children and lead them and give them the resources and encourage them to live a perverted and a lifestyle that is opposed to God. Woe to them. They will have to give an account on Judgment Day. And then fourthly, Jesus declares the value of a soul. And God's joy at salvation, verses 10 through 14. The sheep who goes astray, and he goes and he searches them out. The good shepherd he lays down his life for the sheep, and he restores them, brings them back. And he rejoices. The other 99 are in the fold. There's no need to worry about them, though you care for them. And then fifth here in verses 15 through 20, Jesus declares the method of reconciling a sinning brother. And how does he finish the chapter, this major section, the fourth one? He finishes from verses 21 through 35 by Jesus illustrating the absurdity and the consequences of not forgiving, which is evidence of not being humble. He nails it and he finishes off. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if you, each of you, from his heart, that's where the price comes, does not forgive his brother his trespass. Well, you talk about a teaching that is so needed in the church of Jesus Christ today. So needed. That's chapter 18. We want to concentrate this morning on verses 15 through 20. The method of reconciling a sinning brother, which is marked by humility and personal forgiveness. It is marked by three things that are given to us right here. First, the private recourse. Verses 15 and 16. Secondly, the public recourse, verses 17 and 18. And lastly, the personal resource, verses 19 and 20. Let me read the section and then we'll take a part at a time. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every mouth may be established, or every word may be established, not every mouth. If, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let's look at the private recourse to restore a sinning brother, verses 15 and 16. First of all, the believer is to go to his brother or sister who has sinned against them. Verse 15 is very clear on that. 
Notice the context. It's a spiritual brother or sister. One who is a believer. One who knows better. One who knows the word of God. One who should be modeling the life of Christ. One who declares to know God, but yet is walking in darkness. We need to mark that very well. We have no right to go and rebuke a non-believer full-blown because they are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I am not saying that we're not to confront them when they do something wrong. But we cannot expect the non-believer to know the measure of their sinfulness, their depravity, until the Spirit of God opens their heart and opens their eyes. We are to object, and we object to the world and the non-believing community through the process that God has given us, through legislation, through voicing our opinions, through instructing our children, through giving answers when they ask, many different ways. But if you have a non-believing person who lives next to you and they are living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and for you to get out there all self-righteous and get down and nasty with them is wrong on your part. Did you ever see in the scriptures that only sinners felt comfortable around Jesus? The only ones who felt uncomfortable were the righteous, the self-righteous Pharisees. How do non-believers feel around you? Now, if they are uneasy because of conviction of your life, that's fine. But if they feel uneasy because you're always coming off self-righteous, then that's bad. And there's a balance there. Each of us have to look to it. Notice the responsibility falls on the injured party. That's a twist, huh? Even though we know that, we don't require that. Usually, we feel the person should come to us. And really, it's a mark of lacking humility on our part. Because somehow we think, he should have never done that to me. To me? How could he do that to me? And we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. The responsibility falls on the injured party. If someone sins against me, then I am responsible to go to them and say, you know, I want to talk to you about something, brother. You know, you, you may be even ignorant of it. I don't know. Maybe you're not even aware of it. But, and I could be completely wrong. And that's the attitude that we come in in humility. You don't come and say, you know, sit down. I got a few words to tell you, you jerk. Your Bible will get punched out in the mouth. And then it's not persecution for the Lord. It's persecution for your own stupidity. And so when we come, we come in the spirit of meekness and humility because it could be that I'm wrong even though I think I'm right. I may not have all the facts. So I go in that spirit of humility because I can be wrong, but if I'm pretty sure I'm right, I still go in humility because I want to provoke him or her to repentance. Very important. The purpose of confronting the sinning brother or sister is to forgive and to reconcile and fellowship. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. You see, it's never to make them feel bad. It's never for revenge. It's never to uh, punish them. It's always to reconcile them. Now, that's not always our motive, is it? 
And we're always waiting for them to come. Well, if he's going he's to talk to me. Well, who are you? Who am I? Here's God. He's God. He can do anything he wants. And he, what does he do? He empties himself of his glory. He takes on the form of a servant. He fashions himself as a man. And he comes and he washes feet. You talk about humility. You talk about humbling yourself. And so often we get so haughty because someone has done something against us. Now I understand there's some things that are very, very difficult. Believe me, I'm a man like you. I understand. I understand the depravity of my heart and yours more than you know. Which should bring me to the end of myself knowing that I can't do it apart from God. The word gain is a commercial word of profit, wealth. Have you often thought of your brother who's to be reconciled to you as a benefit to you? A benefit to the body? Or do you just say, well, who needs that jerk? If he didn't come to our church anymore, I could care less. We'd be the better off. Let's be sincere. Sometimes we think like that. Because we walk in the flesh. We're not thinking of reconciliation. We're thinking about me. He needs to apologize. She needs to humble herself. And while I'm talking about humility and love, I stand in the midst of pride and arrogance and uncompassion. James 5, 19 and 20 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Cover, that means you don't tell anybody. That means it is between you and them. It goes nowhere else. That's the reason why the first step privately is me and you. And if you recognize your error and you say, you know, man, I am sorry. I was just, I didn't, under, I didn't know that. Can you forgive me? And then all of a sudden, if you came and started right, you go, oh, yeah, it's okay, man. You know, you're humbled yourself. And that sin, that offense is buried, it's forgotten, and it's never mentioned. And reconciliation comes and it's buried, it's there. But often what happens, the first thing we do is we go to someone who says, you know what this guy did, what do you think about this? Then he knows. And then you told the biggest mouth in the church. And pretty soon everybody knows. And that's wrong. People come to me often, they say, well, what do you think about it? Have you talked to that brother? No. Stop right there. Go back to the source. Talk to them first. Go back to the source all the time. You will save yourself a lot of heartache and a lot of embarrassment. Going back to the source. But what we want to do is we want to slander people. We want to pollute. We want to just get our little group to trust and to believe and to get behind us. And this is the key to destroying a church. Gossip, envy, jealousy, it's all based in pride. Me first. How could the pastor say, do you believe what he said? That? What do you think about it? Or we're more spiritual than that. We say, you know, I was just praying the other day. And um, I just want to get your opinion because you're probably one of the most spiritual persons in the church and, and you pollute the person. You start a division among people. You start a division in the church, which is evidence that you're carnal. 
and not spiritual. You see, our motive is not that pure, is it? 1 Peter 4, 8 says, And above all this, these things, have fervent agape for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. If there is true love and the power is manifested by humility and forgiveness, but what's the power? Agape. True love wants to cover. If something happens with my child and something tragic, I don't want to expose it. I, I cover it and he comes with me and he trusts me. And I go, oh, son, and we cry together and we deal how we're going to take care of it. And it's kept there. And if nobody else has to know, that's it, it's covered. Why? Because I love him. I don't want him to be humiliated. I don't want him to feel bad. I don't want him to be embarrassed. I want to build him up. Is that your motive in the church of Jesus Christ? Is that your motive in your family? It better be. It's the model of Christ. If you go by one and it doesn't work, verse 16 says, then the believer is to go with one or two if the brother refuses to hear. Now, again, the purpose is to establish an accurate account of what is said. You take two or three so that no one is slandered. If a person has rejected your confrontation for reconciliation and you have approached them in love and humility, then the purpose that you go take a second or a third person is not to stack the deck, is not to make this person feel bad again, but is for the simple reason, first of all, is to have these individuals witness what is said so that nothing can be twisted or someone can be slandered. Something very important. Now, that is important for your life, for my life, and for my operation here in the church as a pastor when I have to deal with people. I usually will deal with someone. I'll confront them alone. If they don't hear, then we get two or three. Sometimes I don't even confront them in one. I come right along with a second person or a third. But God takes care of it. And so you have to use wisdom. This is the principle based on Deuteronomy 19.15. Two or three witnesses. A person could not be accused, put to death or, uh, of a crime or anything else except two or three witnesses. Remember, they had a problem accusing Jesus because they couldn't agree. This is for the protection of the person and also the protection of the party who's bringing the accusation. It works on both sides. For that reason, 1 Timothy 5.19 says, make sure that you don't bring a railing accusation against an elder before two or three witnesses. Make sure you know what you're talking about. Make sure you've got your facts together because when you come before someone who has been anointed by God and called by God in their position of responsibility, then you're bringing a great accusation. Now, that doesn't mean that people cannot confront leaders. They definitely are confrontable. But the, the warning and the stress is if you as an individual feel that something is wrong, you better make sure you have your act together and your facts right before you come. And when you do, make sure you have two or three witnesses that are agreeing with you and you know the facts are right and you're not getting a slant on what you feel is to be right. Sometimes people don't like what's going on and they want to get their little parties and they start, start strive. And be careful you don't get sucked into divisions. Be careful you don't get sucked in by carnal people. If you do, it proves you're carnal too. Have enough foresight and spiritual insight and maturity to say, you know, brother, you're in the flesh. Have you talked to John first? Have you talked to them? No, well, you should go there. Don't pollute me. But most of the time we get sucked in. 
and that's carnality. The ultimate purpose is to reconcile the brother through spiritual brethren. Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth about confronting sin. And you can request a copy of today's challenging study from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, titled Reconciling a Sinning Brother. And it's available on CD for just $4. And we invite you to request an additional copy to pass along to a friend. The title to ask for once again is Reconciling a Sinning Brother. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please, don't forget to include the call letters of this station when you contact us. So what's greater than sin? Reconciliation. Find out more when you join Pastor Xavier Reese next time on Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 